0: Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Now he may not be one on one, but five on five. He's the best basketball player in the world. You wanna um, well you wanna plug your book? Isn't that why you're here? Me? Yeah, well, you're the only one with a book.
1: I mean, I'm happy to plug a book.
0: Yes, my book, called, my, book is, my,
1: my book is called uh, uh, Power Players. Do you remember uh, the name of your no, book? No, I, I yes, I do remember the name. <laughs> Sports Politics and the American Presidency. Are going to bring a couple of signed copies uh, to Luke's event in uh, Rockville?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> always, always. Right away. Hey,
0: everybody. The Tony Kornizer Show is on... Now. Luke Russert, by the way, sent me a note that 70% of the people at that book signing in Rockville were Littles. (laughs) A big Lecheesery moment. Yeah, it's just God bless the Littles. All right, so normally on a Monday, what I would do is I would spend the open of the show talking about how terrible I am as a golfer. (laughs) But I'll save that for Wednesday. um, Because I want to talk about what happened yesterday in terms of my viewing habits. There were two people that I have sort of kind of geographical connection to who were involved in winning or about to win and then lose golf tournaments. Denny McCarthy, who's part of his family belongs to Columbia. His uncle belongs to Columbia. I think his cousins have caddied, you know, at Columbia for me over the years. And Denny McCarthy is from close in Maryland and then went to Virginia and has worked with Bob Dolan for a long time. And I root for him. He's never won a tournament before. All of a sudden, he finds himself with a two-shot lead on the back nine at the Memorial. He did not win. I'll get to that later. But Rose Zhang, who won at Columbia at the U.S. Girls after winning the U.S. Am at Woodmont. I mean, you know, I've been to these places a million times. Rose Zhang, in her first pro tournament, she wins. It's such an oddity because she had no birdies. She was the only player in the field who had no birdies, but she won the tournament. She won it on the second playoff hole after making a spectacular second shot. And I wanted to talk about this. And I remembered that in the old days on radio, Ron Syrak would join us and I would watch him on the Golf Channel and he would talk at great length about the LPGA. And Ron, you have followed this. You followed this tour. How extraordinary is it for a woman to just get on the tour fresh out of two years at college and win a big time event
3: tony i was having dinner with friends last night when rose won the playoff and one of the people asked me how big of a story is this i said i'll tell you how big it is tony kornheiser's (laughs) producer just texted me to ask if i can be on tomorrow morning i said that's tagger woods big if i'm on with tony we're usually talking tagger woods uh Nobody has won in their debut event as a pro on the LPGA since 1951. Yeah, that was Beverly Hansen. So that's how big it was, and, and everything lined up perfectly for this. Um, uh, it was in the New York City media market. She's 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 going to be on. She's on the Today Show on Monday morning. You know. Yeah. She's uh, in the media market, um, and she did what I really loved. She did not have her best stuff. She did not have her A-game, and she gutted it and grinded it out. That shows you how competitively tough
0: she is. So I was watching this, and I was, for reasons unknown to me, I was like 20 minutes behind my son. And, and, you know, and he said you know, she had a real tough time on 16, and I said, oh, she just hit a tee shot on 16. I'm behind this. She missed a very makeable putt a very makeable putt on 16 and put herself in a certain amount of jeopardy and then, you know, missed on 18 and ended up bogeying 18 and ending up in a playoff with a woman who just like her a couple of years before had won the Augusta Women's Am. I mean, these are two very, very good young players. But the shot that Rose Zhang hit, she made a great putt on the first playoff hole. And the second shot on the second playoff hole W- was indeed tiger worthy, was it not?
3: Yeah, a hybrid from 180 yards to six feet. Yeah. You know, and that, that put enormous pressure on Cup And then, you know, Cup Joe uh, uh, mishit her, her, her approach shot. Yes. Left it a good two clubs short. And, you know, and then she needed to get her first putt, which was about an 80 footer, she needed to get it inside uh, Rose. She put rolled put it off the green. Her, and she didn't do it. And, yeah. and then it made it possible for Rose to two putt to win. But, you know, Tony, to be great at golf, you need three things. You need need the talent, no question about it. You need to be competitively experienced. And at the age of 20, you need to have the maturity to be dropped into the adult world of professional golf, dealing with media obligations and sponsor obligations and all that off-course stuff. She spent three hours on Tuesday doing media. Three hours, you know, she's not going to be able to do that forever. But the fact that, that she has won 28 times as an amateur, she won the U.S. Girls Junior, she won the Women's Amateur, yeah. she won the Augusta National Women's Amateur, she won the NCAA individual twice. title twice. She reminds me of another Stanford uh, sophomore who I, in 1996, I covered his debut on the PGA Tour, and uh, Tagger finished 60th that week, uh, but things worked out pretty good for him.
0: She has one more victory at Stanford than he had in like nine fewer tournaments. I'm not. I'm not going to compare it to Tiger, but she's got. She has total credentials here. Um, I guess I'm wondering: is it fair to say the sky is the limit for Rose Zhang? Is that fair, or is that just as a result of her winning the first tournament? Because to me, you know, there's a lot of women who as young women dominate the tour for two to three years and then they fall back a little bit. There are two women who I think, and I'll defer to you on this, Ron, but there are two women who I think are, are, you know, in the celestial bodies of women's golf in the last 40 or 50 years, Nancy Lopez and Annika Sorenstam. Can she be that good or are we rushing here?
3: You know, Tony, the the greatest winners that I've covered in the gazillion years i've been doing this are jack nicholas tiger woods and annika sorenstam and what they had in common is they not only forgot their losses immediately they forgot their wins immediately if they won a tournament they played the next week as if they'd never won before in their life and they never took the foot off off the gas that way and and that's what we got to wait to see whether rose can do that how does she build on this you know She's going home this week. I was texting with her agent this morning. I said, hey, she's playing Atlantic City this week. She said, No, nah, she's got to go back to Stanford and take final exams and move out of her dorm. You know, so she's, she's making that transition. Probably the next time we'll see her will be the women's PGA at Baltus Raw. And then uh, the U.S. Women's Open is two weeks after that at Pebble Beach. And I'll be there for that one. I'm looking forward to see how, how she handles that. But how does she build on success? And you talk to anybody when they have their breakthrough in any sport, an important word to learn to say is no, you know, how do you keep your focus on practicing and, and, and your focus on being a great golfer and not letting other things distract.
0: If you're an all timer, you welcome the fact that you have a target on your back, but at a ridiculously young age, she just put the target on her back. Did she not run?
3: Yeah, she did, but, but Tony, what, where I think she's well-positioned on this, and, and it's interesting, the, the, the host of this tournament, of the Mizuho Americas Tournament this, Wee. this week, was Michelle Wee. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, I covered that whole Michelle Wee story when she came out there. I thought she made a, a huge, huge mistake by not playing more junior golf. You know, at 14, she's trying to make the cut on the PGA Tour. And that got a lot of media attention, but it didn't make her competitively tough to learn how to win. And the fact that Rose has followed the Tiger Woods route, which is win every step of the way. I once asked Earl Woods, were you ever tempted to turn Tiger pro early at 16, 17, 18? He said, I was never going to do anything to undermine his confidence. Earl's strategy was when you're 14, beat all the 14-year-olds. When you're 15, kick the feathers out of all the 15-year-olds. He built up that mindset of domination in Tiger's mind so that when he finally turned pro, he believed he could beat anybody. And I think Rose has done the same thing. She has progressed to this point.
0: You make a good point, though. When Tiger made his debut, he was 60th. Wilbon and I on television last week, we said she'd be lucky to make the cut. She "She won it. (laughs) She won it.
3: That was her expectation was to make the cut. You know, she, in fact, she said afterwards, she did, she didn't think she would make the cut this week. You know, she just won the NCAA like a couple of weeks ago, yeah. you know, she's, she's coming she's coming off an emotional high from there. Uh, so uh, uh, for, for her to do what she did. And as I said, what really impressed me, you mentioned no birdies on Sunday. No. Um, she rebounded from the, the missed putt on the 72nd hole that would have won the tournament for her it was pretty much the same putt she made on the first playoff hole. But she rebounded from that and came back out and 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 was not set back. Was not distracted by that. Kept her mind in the game, and and the shot she hit on the second playoff hole was an all timer. That truly was a Tiger like shot.
0: Really was. Thank you, Ron. Thanks very very much, Ron Cyrek, boys and girls, a Golf Channel contributor. Uh, he's got the PGA of America Lifetime Achievement Award in journalism, and we. It's been a long time since we had Ron on, and I remember saying to Michael, I know there's somebody, I know there's somebody who I've watched on the golf channel. And I, you know, then Nigel got the name, and I said, Yes, Ron Syrek. That was good. Let me get to the other golf thing. The other golf thing involves Denny McCarthy. Um, Denny McCarthy, who has been on the tour for six or seven years, made a lot of money, but has not won. As people yesterday in the memorial, people fell back around him, particularly Rory. You know, they all receded. And then he had a two-shot lead at 16, I believe. And yeah, for then much be- of the back nine. Then it became a one-shot, but it was all the way to 16. Sure. Then it became a one-shot lead because Victor Hoblin, who is a great young player, hit a fabulous putt on 17, right? A, a putt you did not expect to go in. Right, from a, a million miles away. And what Denny McCarthy was doing— was he was he was making every par putt, and they were outside of five feet, and he made three of them on the back nine, and all he all he had to do was par seventeen, which he did, and par eighteen. And his tee shot got him in a lot of trouble on eight. Yeah,
1: he had to he had to lay up and then rely on his wedge game. And if you looked at the stats, uh, it's interesting to bring Scotty Scheffler into this, who missed the playoff by I believe it was one one shot. Who was leading strokes gained in terms of you know uh, the larger strokes, if you will, the the approach shots. And Denny, who was leading in putting, and he relied on that. He missed one short birdie putt. That was a tough putt based on how fast these these greens are four and, are and a how, half footer and how sort of uh, how much run out they have, but. Uh, you could hear it in the booth. I think they were really were rooting for Danny to pull through in this. It'd be a great story, uh, and he gets into the playoffs. He's and a great putter. You look at how the his second shot looks like it's going to bounce up. It takes the wrong slope, and then it runs off forty to fifty yards, and he's left with uh, with a very high level pitch shot, almost makes the par.
0: Yeah. So, and we we root for him. Sure. Just we know the family. We've followed his career and and all of that. And and you you think this is the breakthrough? What what you hope for in something like that, what you hope for is that it's not onerous for him. You know, it's not career-defining He was for him. very
1: positive in his remarks after the round with all the noise that's been around golf and all the back and forth with, with Phil and Rory. Oh. Uh, this, is a, this is a still young pro that it's so easy to root for him. Yes. Um, so, yes, I don't think it will be. But, uh, you know, you, you don't get a lot of chances
0: to have that first win at Jack's place. And not only that, what it does for you, it, it, it basically says for the next two years you're of protected. your life, you're in everything. Yeah, it's the Monopoly board. You're it's- in everything. Yeah. So that, somebody said, well, he made $2 million, you shouldn't feel bad for him. I said he would trade the $2 million in a heartbeat for the exemption that, that comes with with a win a yeah win and i'd is, say in the
1: last 18 months for where he is within the fedex cut points and rankings he is positioned to play in everything he wants but then there is a freedom that comes from this where you set up with how many majors are coming up uh,
0: with elevated events how you can try and ride that wave Yeah, a couple of things to add before we get to the actual show dominic smith had no rbi over the weekend had some singles <laughs> yes couple just of singles. a little singles home runs came into play right had no rbi the phillies had 43 home runs yesterday uh, Schwarber. Two by Schwarber right Schwarber banged it Ugh. Schwarber he can't play the field for you but he can god he's great sure bang it though. and and an announcement that caught me by surprise since we were texting back and forth and he didn't mention it and it was michael who because i'm texting back and forth with chuck todd at oh, the oh yes and michael says he's leaving Meet the press, and I write him a note. I go, "What? You well, buried fair, the lead? He was, what?" He was
1: focused on a big weekend series against
0: two <laughs> <Yeah. So laughs> basement dwellers. So we chatted a little bit by text, and you know, he says he's fine with all of this, and you know, I mean, we, we wish him not only do we wish him all the best. What I said was, "Well, you'll come in now, and you'll sit in on the <laughs> podcast, right?" And he said, "Maybe one of those weeks when I pick." Yeah, I'll do that. That so would be great. Chuck is our friend, and we wish him. All the best in the world. Absolutely. Um, We will come back with Brian. That's correct. Brian Windhorst, who's out in Denver for the basketball game last night. I'm Tony Kornheiser.
4: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood a**? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: You're
0: listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a song called Kindness. It's by a woman named Amy Spies, sent to us by our friend Michael Granberry who writes, I was surfing the internet on Mother's Day when I came across a brilliant essay on the cover of Salon, written by a woman who became a mom for the first time at age 50, and then I said, I know that woman. (laughs) She is Amy Speace, one of my favorite songwriters who I met for the first time in 2010. Turned out to be a seminal turning point for an Amherst grad born in Baltimore, who spent her childhood in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, dreaming of being a Broadway star, which is why so many of Amy's songs remind me of lilting ballads, sung on the Broadway stage. It makes sense that Amy spent years as an actress with the National Shakespeare Company. We'll play her twice today. You should listen. Yes. This is called Kindness, and it plays in Brian Windhorst, who's up at a ridiculous hour in Denver, Colorado. The obvious question is, is this a series now, or is it two random games determined by the same team shooting? One day mm. terrible Miami, second day great. What? What is it?
2: Yeah, you know, I think Michael Malone just apparently, I can't say for 100% certain Tony because I wasn't afforded access to the Nuggets locker room immediately after the game. Right. It seemed like Mike Malone um kind of ripped into his team. Three of his starters uh stomped out of the locker room without talking to the media, which is not something I've normally seen after a game too. Okay, maybe if you get eliminated, but, yeah. um and you know, he you know and His point about effort is, you know, reasonable. I think that, you know, you could certainly find video clips where, you know, they were sluggish, especially Michael Porter Jr. But, you know, the magic elixir from the Heat was that the open shots that they got uh, went in. And the the stat that stuck out to me from game one was that, you know, there's this metric, Tony, about quote unquote wide open shots. Uh-huh. You know, they can track distant you know, how far away a defender is from you and the 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 the, 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 the Illuminati or the you know, the intelligentsia from the NDA has decided six feet is wide open. If you're not with if somebody's not within six feet of you, you're wide open. And this stat got passed around that man, the heat were five of sixteen on wide-open shots in uh, in Game 1. And, boy, did they, did they stink. And I was like, yeah, but, my God, they got 16. Uh, I think the Nuggets, who, you know, won the game, had, like, eight. And, you know, that was the thing. Like, they got the look. So I was yeah. not surprised at all that miami generated the open looks the difference was they made them i mean what was the genius move the genius strategy decision of the fourth quarter how did the heat you know use their sorcery to win the fourth quarter duncan robinson hit shots yeah you know i've seen Duncan robinson miss four in uh in in three minutes i i've not seen him make four and that's what happened
0: so this is yeah i I don't think this is brain surgery i'm sure that a lot of people do because they analyze and overanalyze the NBA. On the first game, the, the Heat have four shooters like that you would say they're out there to shoot. They got Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin and Max Struess and Duncan Robinson. In the first game, they were two of 23. And in the second game, they were 17 of 30. It's right. It's not that hard, Brian. And you had to think they were going to shoot better because they can't shoot that bad twice and actually be in the NBA.
2: <laughs> right, so I think there is a little, you know the strategy in there is that the uh, the Heat went with Kevin Love, yeah, and so double team, um, yeah, yeah. So they didn't, so they were able to defend better because they 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 weren't so small that the Nuggets would just throw the ball to Aaron Gordon and he could just get baskets in the paint. And so this is you know this is you know it's, I guess it's it's next level, but it's you know pretty easy to figure out. Um, If you don't give up as many baskets uh, and you can get the ball and then run against the other team's defense – when they're, when they're in motion instead of set up, you got a little bit better chance to score. And if you make some more baskets, you know, then your defense can get down there and get set up. And one of the things that he like to do after he made baskets is play zone. And so, you know, there's a simple act of, of you being able to take the ball out of the – or the other team having to take the ball out of the basket and you being able to get some rebounds and, and move that will make you look a lot smarter. And I think that, you know, the, the love move it was a strategy move, but it helped them get some more stops which helped them get better offense, which helped them get more baskets, which helped them set up better on defense. I mean, that's my paper, Mr.
0: Professor. Yeah, I mean, I said this to Wilbon the other day, and he looked at me like I was from Venus. I said, you put Love in there and autobiography in there, and you double-team Jokic, and the reason you do that is not to prevent his points, it's to prevent his assists. You bother him, so he's got to get rid of the ball a little bit quicker. There's a coach on the other side. Eric Spolstra, you know, saw it, something didn't work in game one and changed a couple of things in game two. And he strikes me as far less volatile and hectoring than Michael Malone. Am I wrong on that?
2: Yeah, I think um, Michael was very, he must have made the calculation and he, he knows his team better than I do. Right. But he must have made the calculation that uh, he needed to jump his team um now they hadn't lost a game tony you gotta think about this
0: hadn't lost at home it
2: well they hadn't lost a game at home but i lost a game at all in
0: three weeks oh okay yeah because they had know, a lot I mean, of time off yeah
2: yeah i mean they swept the lakers yeah they had one game one they had the time off and they, they won the last two games of the sun series you know they had not yeah. been knocked across the nose in a while and and you know i i wasn't surprised that he was upset with his team's play, but I was a little bit surprised he attacked them the way he did. So I don't know. I'm going to reserve judgment. I wish I could say to you, Oh, I know exactly how this will work and this will work, or this is a mistake. I don't know. I did think it was interesting. I I, I was sitting there watching Michael, you know, rip his team going, "Mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting move at this juncture. Um, And uh, I will say that. So, one of the big takeaways from this game was that the heat quote unquote, or, uh, quote, unquote let Jokic score versus the pass. Um, the thing about it is, is that the nuggets were still really awesome on offense last night. They're, they should have you know, won. They were up by a yeah. lot.
0: They should have won.
2: But huh? there is, there is something about this Jokic thing. Like it, the the sample size is too small to be declarative, but like, when he scores forty points, they've lost in the playoffs. Zero hmm. three when he scores forty, and, and, and they've got four losses in the playoffs, um, and he's averaged forty-one points in the four losses. And so, I, I, one of the things that was going around last night is you know, that, oh, uh, the Nuggets were uh, their, their their offense was as awesome as usual. That's not why they lost, etc. But there's something to be said for that when you are – when Jokic is scoring a lot and not passing, Tony –
0: He's a great passer. I I
2: kind of feel like when the other players aren't as involved – I agree. Offensively, it may affect them on the defensive end. Like, it may affect Michael Porter uh, and Aaron Gordon and KCP a little bit when they're not touching the ball as much and not scoring – because I don't know how else to calculate that when Jokic scores a ton of points that they're not as good. It, it, it doesn't make, the, the, the math doesn't compute that, that it kills them offensively because he's still scoring. With, you know, whether you pass the assist or he shoots, it's still a basket. But I think their team is in a better frame of mind when they're more democratic. And there might be something to that. I can't say for sure, but I, I'm wondering about it.
0: Miami is not a great home team in the playoffs. They're not. They've been beaten at home. Um, do you do you have any anticipation for the two games in Miami?
2: Yeah, I w- they've been pretty good at home. I think they've only lost once. Uh, or maybe they lost twice to the Celtics. I, th- I yeah. think
0: that's what it was. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, okay. So my guess would be, and like I'm not standing on top of a of a of a stair and uh, declaring that this is what mm. I see because I'm all knowing. My guess would be that when we get to next weekend, we're looking at two two. Yeah, is my guess yeah. because, and I guess it's not because I think that like Miami has turned the tide and now they will roar back. I just think that Denver has basically been a five hundred team on the road this year. Um, the first, uh, in the second round against the Suns when they were playing, you know, a real challenging team, they did not play well when they went on the road and lost games three and four, and they played well against the Lakers. The Lakers, I thought, put up a good fight, and the Nuggets just, just overwhelmed them. So, And my guess is that the Heat will have at least one more game where they shoot well there in Miami. So my guess is it's 2-2. Uh, and My feel here at 1-1 is that the Nuggets are the better team. Uh, the Nuggets should win over the course of seven, uh, but the Bucks were the better team. On paper. The Knicks were arguable, but they certainly had a better record in home court advantage. And the Celtics were the better team on paper with home court advantage. Yeah, so, Miami uh, beat them all. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to respect that.
0: No, I, I think that's fair. I'll get off topic for a second because we talked about this on Friday. John Morant, I found it, um, I mean, they ask, you ask people to read tea leaves on television, but I found it almost convincing that if Adam Silver was able to exonerate this guy. He would have done it and put it behind him. So I think you're looking at a significant suspension. I just think that Adam Silver's idea is significant is not my idea significant. And I wonder what your read on them postponing this when they say they got everything they need, postponing it until after the series.
2: I couldn't agree with with, with, with you more. I think uh, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that Adam was so blatant oh. about his feelings. And then after we talked... Um, on PTI, Adam was at a charity event, an NBA Cares event, and he kind of doubled down on what he said before, which is that um, that this isn't, a, this isn't a gun law issue, it's a gun safety issue. In other words, people are saying that, you know, well, Ja wasn't, wasn't and won't be charged with a crime, just like he wasn't here in, in Colorado, and he was basically saying that's irrelevant, yeah. Um that you know that it's a safety issue. So yes, I think um I, I can say with confidence that there is a significant suspension coming, but I would just say look at the track record of Adam Silver with player uh discipline. It is typically weak. Um it's de- you know he might argue that but it's definitely not what David Stern was. No. So I <laughs> I see people uh coming off of those comments declaring oh he's getting a season oh no and uh, i do not think no no i do not think that at all i I think think anything
0: less than half a season is not significant and i think adam silver would like to go to 20 games
2: yeah let's put it this way if i had and and i want to be a a billion percent clear here i don't know the answer i'm not even sure that adam has decided the actual game number yet um but what, what it sounds like to me tony is they They completed all the interviews, and I suspect with Ja as well, because he pretty much said he completed the investigation. So I'm sure he – I shouldn't say I'm sure. I I, I have a pretty good feel he also has talked to Ja. So my guess is he's thinking about the actual number of games that it's going to be significant. But I I would have to lean toward it being closer to 20, Mm. 25 than, you know, more than half a season.
0: Me too. Me too. All right, next time we'll talk about Mike Budenholzer not getting a job. Well, we don't have to do that now. Uh, go do what you have to do. Thanks for being no, on.
2: Mike, Mike is getting paid good money, and there will be other jobs that come open someday.
0: The, the, yeah, there's no—because there's no, Wilbon ripped him on the air, which led me to believe that people who travel in the NBA circles uh, are not as enamored of him as I thought the record would indicate they should be. Wilbon killed him.
2: Uh, I think Bud is a guy who believes in process and he's like, okay, this is how we're going to play. He, you know, he kind of sets the process and then sort of sends the the guys out and says, okay, go play my style. Okay. And he's really um, not necessarily interested in deviating from that. And so he's a little bit, you know, he just believes in process more than anything. And, when you lose a playoff series that you shouldn't, and frankly it's happened two years in a row, um, you know, they probably should have won the Celtics series last year, even though the Celtics were the higher seed and Milton was hurt. When you lose the playoff two years in a row because of the perception of lack of adjustments, it's hard. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's hard. But it doesn't mean that he's not a highly successful coach. Oh,
0: he's very successful. Um, and I would want him if I had a bad team, because he'd make my team better. I don't know that I'd want him if I had a great team.
2: And I think that's, you know, if you look at the, the jobs that came out this year, it was, it was teams that were either not ready for him yet or, um, you know, maybe
0: too ready for him, yeah. you know, past, the, past the, mm-hmm. the stage. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Brian. Have a great week, Tony. Brian Windhorse, boys and girls, waking up preposterously early to be on this show. We will take a break. Barry's Verluga will join us. I need to talk out loud about Steven Strasberg. I'm Tony Kornheiser.
4: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show.
0: This is once again Amy Spies. This is called Cottonwood. And Michael Granberry writes, in addition to recording Way to the World, which I contend is one of the best anti-war songs ever written, Collins, Judy Collins, signed Amy to a record label, Wildflower. Amy has now released 10 albums, the most recent being Tucson, released in 2022, as the New York Times once wrote. What Amy Spee says, what she sings, she says with a confluence of poetry and honesty, uh, of emotional specificity. Very, very nice. It's just lovely. Yes. Michael, if people like Amy Spee want to send their original music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonycornizershow.com. She plays in Barry's Verlugo, who I very specifically wanted on the show for something to talk about, something that I read the other day in the Washington Post. It was a story by Jesse Doherty, I believe, about Steven Strasburg being shut down completely. He was, I guess, trying to pitch or trying, I don't know what it was, shut, being shut down physically completely. And the tone of the story made it seem like it's over now. It's over. Let's stop fooling ourselves. It's over. You were there at the start for for Strasburg, right? You were there at his first game, were you not? For sure. What do you remember? It, it must burn bright in your memory. What do you remember about it, and do you think it is now over?
5: I kind of always put Strasburg's first start in some collection of whatever the top five things I've seen live. Yeah. Um, and it's almost immovable. And that's, I mean we could go through what those things are, but to put it in, um, you know, a category that includes Tiger winning at the masters again, uh, in 2019, all the, uh, all the Olympics, all that stuff. it, It was such an event, Tony, and it was such a turning point. Um, you know, I have a really deep history with baseball in this town because I was the first Nats beat writer mm-hmm. and that, you know, that includes the 33-year absence and, and what did it mean to to have a team after you hadn't had a team and, and what did it mean to be a 10-year-old boy that could grow up with um, a team in this town and and just have it be no question of who you're going to root for. And that night was such a transition point because it made it seem like there might be something beyond just having baseball. It might be um possible to to win and succeed and and compete for championships here. Um, this was it you know, Nats Park did not draw large crowds um after it opened in two thousand and eight. Those were bad teams. and if you remember that night was was called Strasmus. Yes because, um, I you do felt like you were unwrapping this present um and that's exactly what you were doing, he pitched seven, seven innings against the Pittsburgh Pirates. He struck out 14. They won the game. Um, he, he, I believe he struck out the last seven guys he faced. Um, it was electric and, and there's not going to be another debut like that. I mean, it was, it was broadcast on the MLB network. Bob Costas was the the play-by-play person. This was an event, a Washington baseball event. Um, like, like we hadn't seen. Um, so he represented so much and I know, um, so much of his career is defined by injury and it's clear that the end will be defined by injury. But if, if you take the back of his baseball card and you include the MVP performance in the 2019 Olympics, um, I I can say that this contract was an absolute disappointment. I do not consider his career to be a a disappointment. It is a sad ending. His injury um, spurred the Nats' kind of you know complete rebuild because if he had been healthy, maybe they don't trade Max Scherzer and Trey Turner um, in the summer of two thousand twenty-one. Right? Who knows how what the trajectory of this franchise would be like if he. We're making thirty starts a year, um and I do think it's over tony and I, I I thought it was over since late last year um it's it's tough he he's he he wants to do it, and the only reason that it's not officially over is because he he is kind of hoping for some sort of miracle that not only can he um, you know do day to day stuff normally um without numbness and tingling through the right side of his body but maybe he could pick up the baseball and, and pitch at a major league level again. It seems beyond far-fetched to
0: me. Yeah. So I, of course, started calling him the Orchid uh, because his starts were when it was 75 and sunny, and then we all have familiarity with him looking. He'd throw a pitch, and he'd look down at his right arm, and the trainer would come running out, and that would be it. I I don't know him. Um, I don't. You know him. I all often wonder, does he burn to be a baseball player or is it something that sort of was imposed upon him because he had this extraordinary talent
5: so i don't think you were wrong in those days when you originally labeled him the orchid um to do that because it really did seem like well okay sorry the the breeze went um shifted and now my countenance is completely different um his body language was was not great even um, on, on nights when he didn't c- get pulled and the trainer didn't come out, you know there were times when um, somebody would make an error behind him and, and he got slump shouldered and woe is me. And at that time, Tony, I, I think I've, I would have said on this program, like I didn't really know him. He he didn't he didn't allow himself to to be known in a way that Bryce Harper did or Ryan Zimmerman did. Um, he 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 went about his business. Um, and you kind of would talk to him every fifth day, and that was it. And that changed over time, and I I came to understand him better, and I think the end is harder because he won't let go, and he's so haunted by the fact that he opted out of his contract, which was his right to do, after the 2019 World Series. series. He turned that into a seven-year, $245 million deal, that now, I, I distinguish between the contract and his career. The contract has to be considered among the worst ever, ever issued
0: in in ever. pro sports, ever
5: because he's pitched forty something innings since then, and that total is not likely to increase. So, um, I, I I have talked to him, and you can tell, you know, um, how much responsibility. He feels for the current state of the Nationals, which actually is kind of optimistic because you can identify some um, players that young players that they've gotten that, that could be part of a, a real good core in the future. But it follows a 107 loss season in which he pitched four innings. Um, he he, I can answer the question that it does burn for him to do it again, and it eats absolutely eats at him that he can't.
0: He has the ring. He has the MVP of the World Series. Very few people have that, but he doesn't have the numbers that he could have had if he were if he had a body like Max Scherzer's. He'd be in the he'd be in the Hall of Fame, right? If he had that body.
5: Yes, if he had the endurance, his, his, yeah. if you extrapolate what he would have been had he been able to be at his best um, the way Scherzer has, there, there's no question. But you know, I mean availability is a yep. tool. It is, a, yep. it is, it counts. And that doesn't mean you put the blame on Steven Strasburg, the personality and the person, but his body has betrayed him. And um, I'm not here to say that's because he trained in a certain way or, or um, you know, did, did things wrong. He, I, I can tell you, if you stood next to him, you'd, you'd have no doubt that he puts in the work because he is just a massive strong human being and, and his body has not um, followed through on the intentions he
0: had. This, he had. this happens. So, I mean, yeah. Zion Williamson, he's never, it's never going to happen. He's going to be out all the time. He's a great, great talent who wants to go out there and his body lets him down. These things happen, right, Barry? You've seen it a lot in sports. It happens.
5: Absolutely. I mean, Greg Oden was taken before Kevin Durant in the draft, right? Like, yeah. And his feet wouldn't allow, there, there are Go back in time. It is nobody's fault. It happens, And I would say that, you know, we're saying the difference between Strasbourg had he been able to pitch more, is that he would be in the Hall of Fame. That means that the, the numbers, as I said, on the back of his baseball card, I don't think he has anything to be ashamed of because when he was healthy, he he performed. Um, and that that's not just the 2019 World Series. I mean, the, the cubs series um in uh 2008 i'm sorry 2017 um he he pitched in wrigley field in a do or die game to force a game five eight innings in um in terrible conditions uh cold um all that kind of stuff and, and pushed the nationals back to to um, dc for a game five that of course they ultimately lost but he i, I don't think I, w- I hope. My hope is that once he gets this cleared out of his head, and the guilt about not living up to the contract, um, it kind of somehow escapes him, I-, I would hope he could look at those numbers and that World Series and some of those playoff performances and say, you know what, I, I did okay.
0: So here is here's the the big question. Here's the column question: Is Steven Strasburg a symbol? simply for the rub of the green and you know when he had these injuries or is he a symbol of the washington nationals and where they are now where they've been and where they are now
5: so i think both can be true okay. and, I, and i do think um you know it, the rub of the green part is kind of about his career and that's just what happened to him but i think he defines their assent and their I mean, he, he was I agree. part of that core. He was the 1-1 pick in 2009. The year before the 1-1 pick was Bryce Harper. And he became, even through all that Orchid stuff, he became um, a person that when Scherzer was added to the rotation uh, and, and they had a collection of um, position players that was annually going to contend, he was a reason that they were good. He was an all-star, um, never a Cy Young winner, um, but but he was part of the machine. And since they won that 2019 World Series and never got to celebrate it properly because COVID happened the next year and um, the season was shortened and he couldn't pitch very much, and then they made the decisions to first trade Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, and the next summer trade Juan Juan Soto, the backdrop is this team has $35 million a year tied up in a pitcher who cannot pitch, and that is leading to lots of these other decisions. Now, you can argue that that's fortuitous because um, keeping that aging core together, aging and expensive core together, might have been hoping against hope that you could run it back and do it again. Um, so they may have been, had taken a longer path to get to the nadir. But I, I, I believe that Steven Strasberg is a symbol of, of all of that. He's yeah. tied to all of it, um, both in good, the good and the bad.
0: I was trying to write down who I thought were the three most important Nats in the his, this short history of the Washington Nationals. And, and I eliminated Harper because I thought, I don't know if you agree with this, I thought Jason Wirth. Steven Strasburg and Max Scherzer. I would have Scherzer over Harper because of the World Series. But I, there's no doubt in my mind that Jason Worth and Steven Strasburg are on that list. How about you?
5: Also, I'm I'm I would be a Ryan Zimmerman. I I don't know how you don't keep Ryan Zimmerman on that list because mm-hmm. he's the one who stayed. He's he's the right. one who signed those extensions twice and had faith that this was going to work out and ended up, you know, with more everything than anybody in the history of the franchise. So I would put him on there. I think Strasburg, I agree with you on, um, on Harper, uh, even though I'm a a big, you know, I'm not in the camp of, Oh, they won the next year because Harper left. I don't connect those those dots, but I would probably leave, leave him off. Um, and, and I think then it's, for me, it comes down to a Jason worth, Max Scherzer discussion. And I probably go Scherzer because, um, because he was here when when they won, although we could have a great discussion over a beer about that about worst importance because yeah. him signing in two thousand eleven before they had even sniffed being competitive gave them a legitimacy that um that they then you know from the entirety of that contract uh worst contract from two thousand twelve to to eighteen they were they were in it every every year and they yeah. were they were um, even the years they didn't win, they expected to win. So um, it's a really good Washington, D.C. sports debate for sure.
0: Yeah. Thank you for this. I appreciate it very much. We went, as lo- I went, we went local. I wanted to go local. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it, Tony. Thanks. Barry's Verluga, boys and girls. We will take a break. We have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser.
4: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: No, it might be just a synthesizer. I'll, I'll try and find wonderful. out. It's Jeremy Vint. I love when we play that. It makes you feel wet. It does. Wet and clean. Blood pressure goes just down. just go right out of a shower. Wonderful. It's Thank wonderful. you, Jeremy. you want to do the Bethesda Bagel after? Oh, yes. we got the bagel sandwiches on Monday, as we, we always do. Uh, Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you, then pop on in, and you will be thrilled. Before we get to the mailbag, let me say they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. They say there's always magic in the air. But when you're walking down that street and you ain't had enough to eat the glitter rubs right off and you're nowhere that is on broadway it's one of the great lyrics ever in pop music and it was written by barry Mann and cynthia Wilde. cynthia Wilde passed away uh, a few days ago and some of the songs they wrote together include obviously on broadway but you've lost that love and feeling, which is one mm. of the greatest power ballads of all time. Do you have the other list of some of their songs?
1: Yeah, uh, we got to get out of this place by, by the, the animals. animals. Um, yeah, just
0: uh, I think they wrote "Kicks" but by Paul and the, the Raiders is great too. Yeah, just just amazing, great too, just amazing stuff. No, Uptown, just by wonderful the, stuff. Oh, and there was one by the by um, uh, the, the Ronettes. I'm not seeing it right now, but uh, yeah, they wrote stuff for the Ronettes. "Walking in the Rain." How walking about Walking in the Rain? In the rain? Yeah. <laughs> Do you write Walking in the Rain? No, I didn't write Walking in the Rain. No, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil wrote Walking in the Rain. Thanks to our guests today, Ron Syrak, Brian Windhorst, Barry's Verluga. Thanks to our sponsors, Simply Safe Policy Genius Grammarly. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. you Get the show through Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. Father's this,
1: Day is just around the corner. We have a new promo code, code with TK Captain one The little guy's cruising. Oh, yeah. yes. uh, it's turning one in about a week and a half. Father's yeah, Day, we walking. have the U.S. Open. So uh, get yourself
0: some West Coast prep polos. Uh, from Trace or Tracy Hendrick, I'm not sure which, in Saginaw, Michigan. Even though you're not a hockey guy, unless it's Neil stuck. Greenberg is on the show. I saw that the Caps just hired Spencer Carberry as their new coach. Who's Spencer Carberry, you ask? Well, six or seven years ago, he was hired as head coach by the Saginaw Spirit of the Ontario Hockey League, and since he didn't know anyone in town, we had his wife and kids over, and I cooked him dinner. Yeah, I cooked dinner for the coach of the Washington <laughs> Capitals. I texted him. I said, you were a huge hockey guy. So I look forward to hearing more Caps talk on the show now that a Little has cooked dinner for the head man rockin' the red. <laughs> well, what'd he cook? Oh, yeah, that's he that's the question. From Randy Whitehead in Forest Hills in D.C., um first on the subject of amazing coincidences my second child a masculine child was born in korea and adopted at eight months old when we were living in north carolina six years later we moved to dc just before he started second grade He came home from the first day of school very excited because there was another Korean boy in his class who had the same birth date. The two immediately became close friends. It wasn't until a few years ago, during a family trip to Korea, that we found out that not only were the two boys born in Korea on the same day and adopted through the same agency, they were briefly housed at the agency as infants before being placed with foster families prior to their adoptions. So these two shared a nursery in Korea but did not meet again until years later, when they lived two blocks apart in a country 11,000 miles away. The boys are now 24 years old and will be lifelong friends. Also, in last week's mailbag, um, David mentioned that the last man toll booth on the New York Thruway had been closed. When was this? I guess it was a few weeks back. When yeah. the woman, yeah, I guess, when the woman to whom I'm related by marriage was in college in the 1970s, she and a friend would regularly drive between Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and their hometown, Delmar, New York. They always brought along a fresh batch of homemade cookies to pass out to toll booth operators along the way. I can't imagine what would have happened if you tried to do that in recent years. From Colin in Queen Creek, Arizona. This weekend, I had a friend come into town for a few rounds of early morning golf in Arizona. On Saturday morning, we got paired with a couple, and at the turn, they asked my friend if we were playing anywhere else while he was here. He said we were playing We Copa on Memorial Day. He asked which course, because it's 36 holes, and we respond, responded, Chola. He asked what time, and we said 6.30, same time we played that morning with them. He then responded with no blank in way. We had never met this couple before, and they had booked the other two in our foursome <laughs> on two different days at two different courses. <laughs> We'll see if the stars ever align again to find ourselves playing with this nice couple. From Ryan Dovell in Harrisonburg, Virginia. As riveting as the upstate New York conversation is, what I really want to know is Toronto still considered a Midwest city. Please consult Wilbon for any geographic-related questions. From Roberta, I recently purchased a bidet toilet seat, and for some reason the tune for I Have a Piano keeps popping into my head, but the words I have a bidet, you don't want me to sing it for sure because all your listeners would leave immediately. Mm. From Tim Cree in Fort Collins, Colorado. Per the conversation with Salizal last week, much of the Twitter world is now referring to Ron DeSantis as putting fingers. <laughs> That's it's funny. From Joe Anderson in Alexandria, Virginia. So the Indy 500 look like a Roman chariot race? I guess Daddy will have to take the T-bird away again. Um ooh, I almost missed one here. From Andrew Bronson in Aurora, Illinois, I watched the movie air the other night. I think you'd enjoy it. I think you would enjoy knowing that Chris Messina, the actor who played Michael Jordan's agent, David Falk, appeared in the film Birds of Prey in 2020. (laughs) Because he is the bird of of prey. From Aaron Halliday uh, in Peoria. He's the Peoria charter coach. While listening to the Monday Memorial Show. Memorial Day show, I experienced a real David Aldridge moment. You see, I heard Wilbon discussing the Northwestern University women's lacrosse team and their national championship victory. And I thought, hey, I know that team. As the official motor coach operator of the Tony Kornheiser show, I was assigned the duty of providing their transportation for the Big Ten tournament in Columbus, Ohio, a few weeks ago. Truth be told, I know very little about lacrosse. But I do know that these women and their coaches are a very tight-knit team and welcome me into their team as their driver within minutes of meeting them. Coach uh, Kelly Hiller and her Is it Hiller? I think it's, I I thought it was Amante, Kelly Amante. Maybe it's Hiller. Maybe that's her married name. And her entire staff, including her husband, Scott, were great to work for. My wife and I were in Nashville for our anniversary on Sunday, the day of the championship. We were having dinner at a local barbecue when I realized the game was on ESPN. Thankfully, my wife allowed us to stay to watch the remainder of the game and sent a text to the team to let them know we were watching and cheering them on. See attached photos. Uh, and share if you'd like on News Channel 8. The show stinks. I'm so grateful to be a little. Uh, From (laughs) Joe Pearson in Indianapolis, who emails us often, and writes, who emails us often. (laughs) The Great Gloucester Cheese Race took place last weekend, a week ago. And the women's race was won by a 19-year-old Canadian named Delaney Irving. The race after the wheel of cheese down the nearly vertical hill is truly insane to watch. That Delaney was knocked unconscious really should not come as a surprise to anyone. From the Guardian's account, she said, quote, I remember running, then bumping my head, and then I woke up in the tent. I still really don't believe it, but it feels great. And the prize is a wheel of cheese? Yes. It's a better finish than the Indy 500. From Tyler Etchenkamp in Lincoln, Nebraska, your memory of old song lyrics is impressive. But do you remember the entirety of the famous poem Images by Tyrone Green? It starts like this, dark and lonely on the summer night, kill my landlord, kill my landlord. That's Eddie Murphy's best bit ever. C-I-L-L, kill my landlord. From Brandon Borzelli in Lebanon, New Jersey, much like in Goodfellas, when Billy Batts is having his coming home party from prison and Tommy tells him, you've been gone a long time. They didn't go up there to, and tell you, no more shoe shines. You, Tony, have been gone from the New York area a long time. Maybe they didn't tell you. New Jersey sweet corn is in fact the best, but it goes by a different name, pizza. Pepperoni, barbecue chicken, <laughs> sausage, ham, meat lovers, white cheese, broccoli, shrimp scampi, stuffed thin, no crust, extra thin crust. The list is endless. It's the best every wise guy has their spot that they consider the best of the best. Additionally, sweet corn has a distant cousin that also marks among the best. Bagels. Even Bada Bing was known to have classic bagels in the back for those sit downs that occurred in the morning hours. Now go home and get your shine box. Very funny. <laughs> um, from Jen. As a loyal little, we know Jen, uh, as a loyal little, I had a situation occur that still haunts me, and I need to know, what would Mr. Tony do? You see, the man to whom I'm related by marriage decided to buy a Cigna quality pie. Therefore, it forced me to go to the store to buy an edible pie and ice cream. The pie selection was simple, cherry crumble. However, the ice cream section is the crux of the issue. As I entered the ice cream aisle, I see Haagen-Dazs on sale, $2, right? That's right. Oh, no, $7. Two for $7. Two for seven. It seemed like a no-brainer until I rolled down to see Tillamook. What's a little to do? The sale price versus the new Tillamook. I desperately looked down at my four-month-old non-masculine child, Emmy, as if she would provide clarification. However, she just giggled. After pacing back and forth between the two brands, I decided to take a leap of faith and try the Tillamook. I rushed to put back the Haagen-Dazs and return to Tillamook, only to be greeted by another issue. Tillamook doesn't have vanilla ice cream. They have vanilla, French vanilla. Or Old Fashioned Vanilla. I settled on vanilla, but I'm still tortured by the decision I made. Did I make the right decision? Setting my goals on Chuck and Roxy episode under 500 so I can be <laughs> as close to the top 20 <laughs> as possible. Jen uh, Knuth Thuray, um I think Tillamook's fine. Yes. What did your husband say? I mean, that's the important part of this. From Dave Carey. My aunt from New Jersey and documented lover, uh, lover of the ants commercial. Recently stayed, you know that commercial, Expired, Expired. Oh, yes. Recently stayed at our home in Pennsylvania (laughs) to dog sit while we were away from Memorial Day weekend. She loves the commercial but sees no similarity between herself and the ladies in the commercial, which tickles my wife and me to death. (laughs) Upon her return, we sat gathered at the kitchen to review our trip and the dog's behavior, which was excellent, by the way. In the middle of the conversation, I got up to get something to drink out of the fridge, and my aunt, suddenly reminded, launched into a list of (laughs) refrigerator-related grievances. Turns out we had a number of expired items in the fridge, including chicken chicken, cutlets, ground turkey, and a bottle of ranch dressing. As I went through the items, I plopped them on the counter saying, expired, 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 (laughs) in a good-natured way with a smile on my face while my wife giggled. My aunt looked at me like I had three heads with a very puzzled look, as if she'd never seen the commercial. Lesson learned. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white.
3: Expired. 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 Thanks, Aunt Bonnie.
6: true may you know kindness and may kindness The desert sun to follow find-